Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, episode number 36. I am your host, Stephen Oakey. Today's episode features my conversation with Joseph K. Gordon of Johnson University. He was here this past spring at St. Leo talking about Henri de Lubac and resistance to the Nazis and the way that de Lubac used scripture as part of that. And so Gordon talks about that time of his life and then he, he brings that argument into our, our conversation here as well. Uh, he also talks about the influence of Lonergan on him. Uh, he did his PhD at Marquette, which is one of the big you know Lonergan Studies universities, along with my home, Boston College. We also talk about what a Lonerganian view of the assessment culture and student learning outcomes might look like at universities. And Joe talks about his love of snakes, which fits perfectly with his living here in Florida. So I think it's a great episode. I think that you will enjoy it. And if you do, you should let us know by leaving a comment on the blog or by leaving a review on iTunes or if you're really, really enjoying it, and I, I, I think you might be, you could go to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash dtpodcast, and become one of our patrons and get all the awesome updates and swag and shout outs that come with being a Patreon supporter. For example, I'd like to give a shout out to our newest patron, Keith Burgoyne. I hope I pronounced that correctly, and I'm sorry if I did not. Keith supported us at the, it's really more of a comment level. And Keith, we thank you for that. So now on to episode number 36 with Joseph K. Gordon. Today for the Daily Theology Podcast, I am here with Professor Joseph Gordon of Johnson University in Orlando, Florida. Yeah, Kissimmee. Kissimmee? Yep. That's basically Orlando, Yeah, right? basically. All yeah. right. Metro Orlando yes. or yeah. the Orlando uh, area. Mm-hmm. So welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. I like to begin all these conversations with the basic question of how did you get into theology? What is it that, like, what were the steps? What was it that drew you to the field? Yeah. It's a... It's a a uh, long and winding road. I'll try to keep it relatively brief. I hail from a uh, low church Protestant tradition, the Christian churches and churches of Christ. And when I was in high school, I felt a vocational call to some form of Christian ministry. And for our people, that means going to a Bible college. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I went to Johnson Bible College in Knoxville, Tennessee. You might recognize that name, Johnson. Uh, it's now Johnson University. <laughs> I now teach there. And many things have happened between going to Johnson and returning to Johnson. For me personally, I uh, received a really extensive uh, education in biblical studies, mm-hmm. um, took two and a half years of Greek and two years of Hebrew and courses over most of the books of both Testaments, kind of entered Johnson with the idea, uh, which is a restoration movement Christian church idea, that I was going to get the Bible right, mm. and that doing all this language work and exegesis would allow me to do that. And I very much appreciate that formation, and it's it's fundamentally important for everything I do. I share some of it explicitly with my students, uh, but it raised more theological questions for me than it actually answered. Mm. And so when it came time to move on from Johnson, I had professors encourage me towards uh, further uh, graduate studies, and I was inclined towards theology specifically. 
So I actually stayed in the independent Christian churches in terms of my next uh, educational institution. I went to Lincoln Christian Seminary in Lincoln, Illinois, and at Lincoln I had a number of professors formed in really, frankly, Catholic context, Mm -hmm. uh, even explicitly Roman Catholic context. So I had a professor who did his PhD at Boston College and uh, studied and wrote on the work of Bernard Lonergan there. Mm -hmm. And he encouraged me to consider Lonergan to help me with some of my theological issues. (laughs) Um, And I found Lonergan's work incredibly compelling. I also had a professor who did his doctoral work in patristics at St. Mm-hmm. Louis University. He introduced me to the Church Fathers, so I read Irenaeus and Origen and Augustine. Mm-hmm. And I got interested in philosophy proper and studied with a professor who has a Ph.D. from University of Nottingham and is tied to a number of radical orthodoxy folks, mm-hmm. and so I got those influences. And uh, all these things kind of came together to really help me think through, again, a lot of the theological questions that Mm -hmm. my undergrad coursework had raised. Mm -hmm. So when it came time for me to conclude my my seminary studies, my first graduate uh, studies, I uh, still have a lot of questions about Scripture. Uh, You might guess that I've continued to have those (laughs) and answer them. And I wanted to write a thesis on Barth's theological engagement with Scripture. And my, my professor from BC, Steve Cohn, uh, kind of gently nudged me towards the work of another Jesuit, Henri de Lubac, mm-hmm. who I'm talking about today here at St. Leo. Uh, de Lubac did a ton of work uh, studying the fathers uh, and medieval theologians and their use of scripture. Mm-hmm. And so that's what I focused on. And then, you know, where else could I go but to the Jesuits? So, <laughs> um, I mean... My my most significant. I mean that warms my heart to hear. Right? Yeah. Well, uh, I love I love the Jesuits, and so I um, I applied to doctoral programs. A number of them. The only one I really wanted to go to, and the right fit for me, was Marquette University, mm. which is where I did my PhD. It's a tremendously rich environment, very diverse ecclesially uh, in terms of both students and professors, and so there I was really welcomed. To, to come and bring what I brought from my own formation and also to raise and reflect on questions, wonder mm-hmm. about questions freely. And so uh, it was a tremendously rich experience for mm-hmm. me to continue studying the Church Fathers, to, to study Aquinas carefully, uh, although I, I am not in any respects a Thomist. Mm-hmm. I, I learned much from, from Thomas. And then, of course, to spend much more time with Lonergan's work and with the work of de Lubac as well. So, in short, my Christian commitment and kind of desire and uh, calling to ministry and to teaching led me through this winding path. Mm -hmm. Um, And really the questions that drive my work are the same questions that I had as a high schooler, even. The Mm. answers that I give to them are much, much different than uh, what, I, what I've been supplied with at any stage of my mm-hmm. education. So now I'm back at Johnson teaching theology. Uh, I am the theology of the Department of Bible and Theology at Johnson mm-hmm. University. All my other colleagues are trained in biblical studies. Sure. And uh, so now I am inflicting 
theological questions <laughs> and theological resources on my students from a whole wide variety of, of possibilities within the, the broad, rich resources of, of Christian tradition. Sure, sure. So. so one question that raises for me so far is you, you noted the influence of Lonergan on your thought and, and how you think about scripture and about mm-hmm. theology. You noted the Lubach. And I'm curious what for you or how is it for you that interacting with these very deeply, very steeped Catholic thinkers, uh, what that's like for you as conversation partners coming out of a Church of Christ context? Yeah. Well, if you're a Christian, you're committed to the authority of Scripture. Mm -hmm. Um, It's not like an option. Mm -hmm. You don't get to choose not to do the Bible, uh, even if you're Catholic, right, or Orthodox, uh, any variety. We're we're doing our best. (laughs) Right, yes, all all of us are. And so as Jesuits, both de Lubac and Lonergan, you know, have that commitment and reflect that commitment, Uh, but they do so in, in ways that are nuanced by the inheritance of Christian reflection in the past mm-hmm. and reflection on questions that our present situation kind of puts in our hands that we have to answer. And so these resources and these questions are not the ones that I that I got as part of my formation in an explicit sense, mm-hmm. but they're real questions. And here I was exposed to and provided resources to, to raise them and answer them. So what does that mean for me being in my tradition with these resources, I don't know, except to, to practically just keep doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my, my institution supports me in that wholeheartedly. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, it is. I think I mean, so. <laughs> part of, I guess part of why this strikes me as a question is, and, and Matt and I have talked about this before, a lot of my extended family is Church of Christ. Oh, okay. so my, my wife's whole family is Church of Christ, and it's you know, she's got generations of Church of Christ yeah. preachers and, and all of that. And the thing that struck me about your interest in Lonergan is my my grip on Lonergan is much more in the, the method side of Lonergan yes. than the yeah. earlier insight side. And there's a, there's a degree to which when some of my extended family talk about scripture, talk about the church, talk about what we're called to do, it definitely sounds more like the sort of classicist worldview yes. of Lonergan than yeah. the historicist one. And it... And it seems like sometimes, like, when we're having dinner, table, vacation, conversations, and everyone's like, oh, Steve's a theologian. He teaches religion. Everyone wants to talk to me. And then it's like, oh. Dangerous, yeah. Steve sees the tradition very differently than we do. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) It seems like that's one of, I guess I hadn't put it together until today. That seems to be one of the ways in which there's a tension there that, in that context, I haven't figured out how to navigate. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure I've figured out how to navigate it, but I've... I've come to a number of strategies for mm-hmm. helping my students and, and others uh, among my people to, to think about the relevance of asking the historical questions, mm-hmm. asking questions from, a, from the recognition that concepts, words, ideas have dates, that things change in history. There's a, a <laughs> this is ironic to say, but there's a long history within Protestantism of denying that mm-hmm. uh, but it's not exclusive to protestants yeah. it's, it's like a human mm-hmm. a human issue we are constantly because of our kind of control freak uh, nature trying to recover something that probably never 
has existed, uh, but we're not aware yeah. of that. And and so that that's the classicist impulse that mm-hmm. you you've named. There's a way of doing things, and so what we need to do is recover that way of doing things. That, in a crude sense, could describe the Restoration Movement, or a number of other Protestant movements, or a number of movements both within, even in Eastern Orthodox theology, mm-hmm. or in, in, in versions of, of Catholic religious consciousness. It's a human yeah. a human issue. Uh, it emerges from what we are as human subjects, and you know, you probably can hear me sort of channeling, <laughs> starting to move into channeling Lonergan a little bit. And it, and it reflects certain deformities that are characteristic of, mm-hmm. of human subjects. But it's not necessary. Yeah. And the way that you break out of it is the way you break out of any kind of narrow horizon through asking questions and mm-hmm. through wondering and through paying attention to things you were not yet aware of. And that's what I'm, that's what I'm doing and that's what I'm trying to help my students do. Why? Because if you're a Christian, you're committed to trust and, and hope and faith that God is reconciling all things in Christ through the Spirit, and the church plays some role in that. And we probably should think about what that means mm-hmm. for our situation and for our engagement with our respective traditions. And that puts the question to my own tradition, where do we fit in this? You know, the Restoration Movement started as, out of a good desire to seek the unity of of the churches. It's very American and, and also Scotch common sense in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. but that's a real achievement, you know, to pursue Christian unity, right? It's kind of important to Jesus. <laughs> uh, he prays that, that we would be one yeah. as he and the Father are one, and that's totally authentic. Mm-hmm. Now, the ways that we've gone about doing that in my corner of the Christian world you know, we've we've made a lot of mistakes, and I think we've followed a lot of dead ends. But that's not necessary. Again, that that is our heritage, but it's not it's not a fatalistic one. And so, it's important for us to point out where we've been and what what is authentic in this, and then to recognize where we've come up short and mm-hmm. and to learn from our mistakes. And lo and behold, there are resources outside of the confines of of our tradition for addressing these issues. The answer is not, oh, well, necessarily abandon this way of doing things and then try to find a different way of doing things somewhere else that's the right one. The answer is learn what authenticity requires of of us from where we are. Learn what asking and answering the questions requires of us in our situation. And so that's that's what I'm trying to do. And it's received in different ways. But my students, by and large, are very, very open because they know that I care about their well-being. They know that I care about the church. They know because I repeatedly say Christian leadership is an extremely dangerous thing. You, you better take James' words to heart. Not many of you should be teachers. Those who teach will be judged more, more harshly. You do not want to mislead people and that they they see that rightly as a call to to grow in responsibility and faithfulness and and their use of language and their theological reflection and that's compelling it's not catholic or protestant or orthodox it's human nature and and also speaks to possibilities of redemption in in concrete human nature and i don't have to argue for that so they they see its relevance <laughs> 
Joe, you mentioned the restoration movement a few times, and uh, you also said that you were grateful for, you know, how it shaped you. And I I can identify with that. Um, And I'm wondering, what are some of the ways that you see it bringing you gifts? You know, did it what? What sort of things that you that you received from the tradition that made you grateful? I think you mentioned unity, and I'm also wondering, you know, if there were any other things that that come to mind. Yeah. So God's goodness and grace always are, if if operative in concrete human circumstances, in spite of our weaknesses and fallibility and and finitude and even sinfulness. And so that should qualify everything that I say. You know, we, like other brothers and sisters in Christ, when we do actually reflect the good news of God's work on our behalf, do it in spite of ourselves. But I, I just see it in my in my students. I see it in their desire to love God and to love their neighbors. And even as I'm provoking them to think about what it might mean to love their enemies, I see them passionate and concerned. They they ask me questions. And for whatever reason, restoration movement institutions keep attracting these students. They keep coming through my doors. And ma- many of them are, are intellectually gifted. Others m- may not be operating with, you know, you know, like rocket science level intellects, but they, they're passionate and they, they have the right concerns. And even if they don't know how to speak responsibly, even if they're not yet Trinitarian, which, by the way, is not endemic to low-church Protestants, even if they're, you know, they're only just beginning to think through how to speak Christianly, their motivation is is authentic and beautiful, and I think I can see evidence of the Holy Spirit. And to be even more personal, what, what blessings do I have from the tradition? Well, I keep bumping into people like you, who, who <laughs> seriously, uh, who have who have a very similar formation, you know. When I was at Marquette, in the year that I started, and in the next two years, Marquette admitted five of 31 students from the independent Christian churches. Five of 31 students were from my small corner of the the Restoration Movement, Mm -hmm. and two others had Church of Christ background influence. Mm -hmm. Uh, What in the world is is going on there. If you if you if you go up to BC, you see something very similar. Right now there are at least four or five people doing doctoral work in systematic or historical theology from this tradition. Go to St. Louis University, go to Southern Methodist University, uh, go to Baylor. Our institutions keep attracting students who out of their faith are growing to speak and think in, in beautiful, faithful, responsible ways. And, you know, there's a strange ambiguity there, too, because there's not really any place at a doctoral level for us to do this among our own people, but it keeps happening. So when I was at SBL <laughs> this past fall, I hung out with David Bentley Hart a little bit, which was a ton of fun. But at one point, I was sitting at a table with David Bentley Hart and seven people formed in the restoration movement having a conversation <laughs> and i uh i was just struck by that this is uh this is kind of unusual what what's going on here Th- this is something that gives me a great deal of 
of joy, and it's also an ongoing source of confusion. You know, what, what sense do I make of this? But uh, again, we just keep stumbling upon students who, who care in the right ways, and I am privileged and humbled to get to help, help more, which I think is a beautiful thing, and it's also slightly terrifying. Now, because of some of the like the politics and institutional issues involved and all that sort of stuff, mm-hmm. but faithful and responsible theology is compelling, whatever your formation is. Thanks for that that question, the opportunity to talk about some of those things in this venue. So, one one of the things I, I take from that I was struck by is your experience of working with students in this, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm thinking for myself just the, just from my class yesterday, we were doing parables. <laughs> And here at St. Leo, I, you know, it's a it's Catholic university. I'd say about a half of our student body is probably at least nominally Catholic. Mm-hmm. But uh, the majority of the remaining students, I think, are evangelical hmm. Christians of varying stripes. And so, you know, like a, a lot of my students who come to class with their Bibles, they have their, you know, their, their leather-bound KJV with their yeah. name engraved on it and all that. And, and we were talking yesterday in class about the parable of the prodigal son and I was, I don't know if I did this successfully or not. I always wonder this. But I, I was sort of pushing on the the longstanding traditional narrative of focusing on the younger son in the mm-hmm. story and trying to get at, what, you know, where does the elder son fit into this story? Where yeah. does he fit into this? And I, I had a student who was giving me a lot of pushback. And on one hand, I was, I was very grateful because, you know, he's, he's very good at, like, going back to the text, going back to the text and, and trying to ground his, his pushback and his critique but it was also at times a little frustrating because I, w- I was trying, I wasn't trying to say is like, whatever, everything you've always known is wrong. I was trying to say is like, you know. I often so- do that with my students without explicitly noting that's what I'm doing. Yeah. Like I'm, I'm, I'm trying, <laughs> like I'm trying, I'm trying to sort of crack a certain understanding of things. And it might be a little bit different in our context than, than yours in the sense that. I tend to presume, I think accurately, that most of my students have a very, very bare familiarity with scripture at mm-hmm. all. And so and so for some of them, there's not there's not a pre existing understanding I have to fight with. There's yeah. there's just a, not an understanding to yeah. begin with. But that means that I'm reaching like I'm trying to pull off a, a different range of heists in the same course. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. so I don't know. But I, I all of that is to say I'm I'm sort of struck by your experience of students largely being receptive to this kind of critical approach that I, I guess I, at a Catholic university I expected would be more accepted, but because of certain contingencies is much harder to work with. Yeah. Yeah. That, that actually reminds me, I should mention another key blessing from my situation. And this word is, or this language is kind of fraught, but my students have a, significant degree of biblical literacy in comparison with what you might encounter in a lot of other university contexts. Part of the care and motivation they bring in is is already a care that is invested in scripture. And so they have various texts memorized Mm -hmm. so they can pick up on allusions that I make in 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 my lectures. You know, and it and it's varied, you know. But that's something to work with. Yeah. Right. So I say biblical literacy as as like a label is a fraught term because um, what does that actually mean? You could you could have the entirety of Scripture memorized and and not not reflect the gospel whatsoever. You know, people have found Scripture 
eminently useful for justifying pretty much everything and anything that they want to do selfishly on their own. Mm -hmm. So just knowing the text, qua text, knowing the words, using the words is not is not enough. Yeah. Um, and this is actually something I'll talk about in my lecture today. What's, what is De Lubach's biblical literacy during World War II? Well, it leads him to resist the Nazis. Yeah. It leads him to, to, to uh, <laughs> disobey the law, uh, yeah. quite, quite literally, in the service of, of, of the humanity of, of his uh, Jewish elder brother, elder sister. Yeah. I was actually wondering if I mean, you're speaking here today at St. Leo about Henri de Lubac and resistance to the Nazis mm-hmm. and to the the role of scripture in that in particular mm-hmm. for him. And I was wondering maybe if you could give us a bit of a preview of uh, particularly, I mean, kind of the history around it and, and what he was doing. And, and, and in a sense, I guess I'm curious kind of how he came to that being his situation. Yeah, well, there's so much that I could say, and there's not enough time to to really get you know. And you you know you know this, of course. Right? Any any set of historical s- circumstances to really identify all the mo- moving parts is, is beyond the scope of sure. what I can what I can say. But in, in short, De Lubac was already long before World War II responding to currents in public discourse and in Christian Mm -hmm. theological discourse that he saw as gravely erroneous. Uh, Ways of of thinking about race in particular, ways of thinking about exercise of authority that uh, were were inconsistent with Mm -hmm. what he knew Christian faith was and could be because of his extensive reading of the Church Fathers, because of his immersion in Scripture as a Jesuit priest, because of, you know, doing the Ignatian exercises and the examine of consciousness uh, because he loved Jesus. Mm -hmm. He had that formation. And so whenever he found himself in in the situation with the rise of totalitarian regimes in in Germany and Italy and, you know, threatening in France and and Spain, he felt compelled to, to act. He felt he had no choice. But there are plenty of other people who probably had very similar formation. And so I'm, I was asking, asking myself the question last night, what, what makes the difference for, for him? I mean, I want to say, well, it's his love of Jesus, and he just does all these things better. But, you know, I think that I have to leave the question open. And I think the question, I think I have to put the question to myself, you know, what, what would make the difference for me? Mm-hmm. Uh, if, if I was in the same kind of situation, how would I respond? I'm not really sure how much more I could could say yeah. than that. I mean, what I'm what I'm struck by is, I mean, in his context, he's, I mean, he's he's a priest at this point. He's responsible for educating others. Mm-hmm. You know, France falls effectively to the Vichy regime, and the Vichy regime, and he, he goes underground, right? Like, yeah. he's and so he's still writing. He's still publishing. Yeah. You know, some of his confreres are getting caught, but yeah. he's evading capture. And martyred even. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm thinking, you know, in the in the November here we had uh, Victoria Barnett here to speak about Bonhoeffer and mm-hmm. and there's a lot of differences obviously, but he's in kind of a similar situation yep. in the thick of it in Germany. And you know, there's lots about the the complicity of various Christians and various Christian communities and churches with the Nazis and with their allies. And so it it is striking this question about how does someone discern in the midst of all of this 
in many cases against the larger part of their community. Yep. You know, how is this the right way to witness? How is this the right way to be a disciple? And I guess to some extent, and, I, and I, I've mentioned this to you previously, that I am not as strong on Lubach as I could be, but I, this is not, I guess this isn't a period of his life that I really knew or understood. I always know of him more as sort of the 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 figure who is more or less silenced for part of the 50s yes, and yeah. influenced in Vatican II. And among the things that strikes me is... Yeah, was, and he was writing Sir Natural yeah. when he was running from the Gestapo yeah. during World, World War II. And, <laughs> and among the things that struck me as I was sort of reading up a little bit on the biographies is the Lubach refers to the period in the 50s where he's in trouble as the dark times. Yeah. He doesn't refer to World Not War II that World way. War II, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I, I guess that, that there's a little cognitive dissonance in that for me. Yeah. But well, so, I, don't, I don't have a question out of that per se, but I this is a thing that is very striking to me, both in the kind of the theme that the CCGS has had going throughout the year and in this talk in particular. Yeah. Well, he, he had a conviction of of clarity, I think, that was rare during mm-hmm. the war. And I think was confident that what he was doing was what God would have him do mm-hmm. and then he's silenced and can't teach theology and so uh, i mean i think spiritually that i can see how that makes sense it, it, it at one stage it is i mean it's the darkest period of the, of the 20th century mass massive atrocities committed you know in the holocaust and and uh, and warfare in general it, it it's just horrific but in terms of him personally he knew what he was supposed to be doing yeah. and then maybe he doesn't in the in the 50s you know mm. but i think oh, interesting yeah but yeah, i yeah. think also and and i'm actually i'm not i'm not directly critical of of him but i've but i've pointed out significant issues in his work on pre-modern exegesis which actually follows his resistance to anti-semitism hmm. so in in the theological studies article that i had published in the fall i note that despite putting his life on the line during World War II, when he writes his book on origins exegesis and when he writes the massive four-volume set on medieval exegesis, he reproduces the anti-Judaism of, of Christian tradition mm. without critical comment. And in, some, and in some respects, he even makes an apology for it that does offer some historical context, but is ultimately not enough. And so, you know, it's not like he's a, a totally unambiguous sure. hero. There's still real difficulties here. After I published that article, I got a like a five-page single-spaced email from an older Catholic theologian basically noting that this anti-Jewish language keeps appearing in Catholic theology in the 40s, 50s, 60s, after the Second Vatican mm. Council, after Nostra Aetate. And so, you know, there's there's cognitive dissonance there in the tradition. Yeah. Everybody recognizes that this is what Christian faithfulness looks like, but there's a disconnect. Uh, well, how, how did things come to the point where so many Christians in Europe could think that anti-Semitism was compatible with Christianity? Well, you know, the, the history of anti-Judaism and Christian tradition makes the way for that in part. And then after all these, you know, all the events of the war and, and the Holocaust and the horror, this stuff just shows right back up in the in the language. 
Right. So in in Delubach's case, in the the World War II period that you're talking about today, is the is the insight or the the shift that occurs for him about the responsibility to resist the Nazis, is it primarily about I mean a Christian call to love to serve neighbor? It's not, it's not about like a reordering of the reading of the Jews in the New Testament. Well, uh, I don't think it's totally disconnected from okay. from that. He returns to four key biblical themes, okay. which I'll identify in my talk this afternoon. And the first one is that there's an intrinsic unity between Christians and, okay. and the Jewish people okay. because of their shared heritage, particularly the literary heritage of the of the Old Testament for Christians and the, the, the Tanakh for, for the Jewish people. And so there, there's this bond that if, if you break it, you, you don't have Christianity anymore. Christianity is unintelligible apart from its Jewish roots. And this is something that seems like it's so obvious it should go without saying, but it wasn't in the first half of the 20th century. You know, but every single author of the Old Testament is Jewish. All of the authors of the New Testament, save only Luke, are Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. Paul is Jewish. Mm-hmm. You know, there's strangeness and and obviously, you know, the, the convictions of the early church are, are very distinctive and, and fit strangely among other other understandings of, of Jewish faith at the time, but uh, you can't you can't understand Christianity without. And so there's this there's this dimension mm-hmm. of, of his of his writings. He comes back to this unity again and again and again. But there are three other key ones, and the love of God and neighbor as the motivating factor for all Christian reflection is one of them. Mm. And I think it's the one that gives all the others their rightful place. Okay. But then the two others are that humanity is fundamentally united from creation, and that is mm. its eschatological goal okay. as well. And he, he articulates this extensively, drawing on the witness of the liturgy, the fathers, and scripture, especially in his first major book, Catholicism. The subtitle in English is Christ and the Common Destiny of, of mm. Mankind. Mm. So humanity can't be separated racially. And then the final is that every human person is created in the image of God, which is, again, shared from, from Jewish heritage. But beyond that, in Christian in his Christian conviction, the incarnation dignifies human persons, hmm. that God takes on flesh, changes how we, we must think of persons. And so these themes keep coming up again and again and again. And he says, if you don't, if you don't hold these, you, you can't rightfully call yourself Christian. Okay. And the implications of each of them is, is that Christians are called to, to resist anti-Semitic legislation, to, to, to act on mm-hmm. behalf of, of people who are oppressed. Mm-hmm. So, of course, in his concrete circumstances, that was the Jewish people and others that, that the Nazis were executing. But, but it's really more extensive than that. At one point he says, anything, anything done in action against the dignity of a human person is something done basically against the Christian understanding of humanity. Okay. And and so must be yeah. repudiated. And so the, those latter three, I mean, the, the love of God and love of the neighbor, the common destiny and the unity of the, of the race, and just... Dignity of the, the dignity persons. Dignity of person yeah. and the image of God. Mm-hmm. I mean, those would apply to any kind of racial separation, yes. racial violence. Yep. Yeah. Yes, yeah. any, any whatsoever. Yeah. yeah. And also, there to, to go back to a distinction you raised earlier they're against classicism mm-hmm. explicitly they 
De Lubach is introducing history into Christian theology in parallel ways that Lonergan is. Mm-hmm. Christian faith is is transcultural and it's not imperialistic. Sure. So he he has this beautiful set of essays on theology of the missions that he gave very early on in the, in the war, delivered it in 1941. And in the first half of it, it's like just over 50 citations and allusions to scripture. I mean, he's just, and most of it's the Old Testament. And then at one point he he relates a, uh, a quotation from a young man from China, which I'm, I want to pull it up and actually read it so sure, I don't sure. butcher it, if I can find it quickly. But I, I'm, I got to thank Matt again for inviting me to do this because it allowed me to revisit a bunch of stuff that every time I come back to his work, I just am stimulated, edified, uh, encouraged, <laughs> just just wonderful, wonderful stuff. Some of what you were saying, Joe, was remi- some of the themes that you were raising here about the unity of the human family and recognition of that in the shadow of the Third Reich hmm. is reminding me of Mitt Menender Sorg, which yeah, is I'm the... going to quote it in, okay. <laughs> in okay, my Okay, so today. we're on the same page, uh-huh. same encyclical page. It sounds like, you know, where you have this strong critique of of the of this of this racial ideology mm-hmm. this theory of race that that is heretical it's antithetical to like what you said this 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 vision of humanity that's that's deeply christian and that's recognized and you also have this very clear conviction there in the text that there is a, a marcionite mm-hmm. heresy here before them as the old testament is being and yeah. anything jewish is being cut out both uh, figuratively in their scholarship and then also literally embodied yeah and And so i wonder if this kind of this manifestation the physical manifestation of this kind of marcionite ideology in the horror of of the of the showa is something that uh, is we with that we learn that we're learning something about here but the connection between racism and anti-semitism that we have not fully worked out yet because anti-Semitism is, is lacking, the critique of, of anti-Semitism is lacking from this encyclical, and that's one of the, uh, the major problems of, of, with the church's voice in this era is that we don't see a really clear denunciation of anti-Semitism, vocal denunciation. So, De so Lubach offers very clear and explicit denunciations. So that makes him stand through, out, I through, think. Throughout his writings. Um, and, and he was, I have, to, I have to check on this, but I'm pretty sure he's doing it even before the church became aware of the Hitlerian final solution, even mm-hmm. before, and I and I think it's because he was so formed in in his work that resulted in Catholicism. That first book, published in 1938, he he was wrestling with all these things in his political context and mm-hmm. and seeing these deformities in the church. So he was because he was so invested in in thinking about them. He he was when the time came. He, he he knew what he should do. Mm-hmm. So I, I found the quotation. I, I like this because it connects well with the theme of my talk. I didn't actually put it in the talk, but maybe I should have. <laughs> He's talking about the mission of the church. He writes, The universal mission par excellence, which she accomplishes not only through a feeling of justice toward all who merit life, but also in the conviction that all races, all centuries, all centers of culture have played their part in bringing out the full value of her own treasure. And then he quotes from a young Chinese man uh, who said to him, quote, Scripture will be fully understood when it has been translated, read, meditated upon, 
in all the languages of the earth. Hmm. I I just find that beautiful and compelling. In in my uh, forthcoming book, I note the the strangeness of of Christian kind of comfort with translation from the very beginning of the church. Hmm. That's a dimension of the universality of Christian faith that we can take for granted and ignore. If you pay close attention to Scripture, though, you can't take it for granted. You can't ignore it. The gospel is is to be preached in all places and not in an imperialistic way. It It is the opposite of the imposition of Western culture on non-Western peoples. Yeah. So, unfortunately, you know, that there's, there's that long history and legacy in Western Christianity, but it's a deformity to the extent that, that that's how the, the the church operates. Yeah, um, and it and it's tied to, in some sense, the you know the the problem of success, mm-hmm. which is when you I mean when you achieve that like relative global uh, reach, it it kind of reframes the perspective from when you're this kind of early missionary evangelical yeah. you know impulse. Yeah, and so. But it never goes away. Yeah. I mean, it, it crops up in various places. So, but I would I would say it's so you name the, name that the problem of success. I would say it's a problem of a deformity of value. Yeah, a uh, promotion of an ideal of of the good mm-hmm. success over the ideal of the good which God reveals, yeah. which is self sacrifice mm-hmm. and love in in the world. Yeah, so. Christianity in in its best moments just presents a different set of values for what success and what goodness and yeah I find often what comes up in ethics courses that I teach is that a lot of I mean in, independent of other types of questions like you know more utilitarian or, or you know those kinds of questions about how someone sees the way they ought to act it often ends up boiling down to a very slight but a very subtle but important polarization between faithfulness and effectiveness and <laughs> and that and that like the those shouldn't be separated ultimately and and part of the separation is due to sin and i and i get that but very often it's about like well this isn't going to work so but it's like but that but it's the more faithful to the witness and i think that's a hard i think it's a hard nut to crack for people so Yes, especially in our contemporary context, yeah. driven by efficiency, standards, assessment, measurement. for instance, yep. measurement. I have to say, yeah. one, of the Consumption. Things, <laughs> one of the things that has so aggravated me in my time so far is, this is a minor thing, but I imagine some people listening to this will have this experience too, is we, you know, we write the, the learning outcomes for a course in our syllabus. We have our you know, three, five, whatever things we want people to get out of it. And I've been explicitly told repeatedly by several people that the like verb in that cannot be the word understand because you cannot measure understanding. It's like, but I, that's what I want for students is to understand. Like I want, I want them to be able to like absorb and make sense of and be able to express and be able to critique something. And understanding is a key to that. And for my field, I don't like, it's the best verb almost. Yeah. Uh, and so I would I would not to be overly provocative, but I would want to go even further than that because judgment and decision are 
higher on the level mm-hmm. of self-transcendence than understanding is. Yeah. And loving God and your neighbor are higher yet still. Uh, that's what I want my students to... <laughs> how do you measure that? That's the thing. <laughs> uh, uh, it's not measurable, right? How, how, how do I measure whether my students have developed virtues of attentiveness and mm-hmm. uh, personal engagement necessary for the preaching and living of the gospel in the world. Yeah. I can't I can't assess that. Yeah. It's it's not assessable in in any sort of way that somebody wants me to assess it. <laughs> the, the thing I'll push back on with that though is that I feel I feel relatively capable of judging whether or not my students have understood. And I I feel very tentative and nervous about judging whether they have you know, had like the, the, you know, intellectual, moral, religious conversion conversions. Conversions. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, that's, yeah. The, that's the place where it's like, I like, this is where I want you to get to. Yeah. But like, yeah, you're right to do that. Cause who can, <laughs> who, who can, who can really pass judgment on that? The answer yeah. is God, yeah. not us Yeah. to, to be able to, <laughs> to evaluate uh, things on those terms. We would need to know the answers to all the relevant questions. Yeah. Which... My my parish here in Tampa operates a you know a K through eight school, and they have this banner in on the fence in the parking lot, and the top it says two goals, and then number one is college, and number two is heaven, <laughs> <laughs> and I really like that. <laughs> it's very it's straightforward, but it like it's very clear. It's not just about go to college, get a job, yeah. you know, like you know have an income, all that kind of stuff. There's a deeper reality at issue. So is that a two-tiered Thomism right there? It is a little bit. Yeah. Is that a uh, pure natura pura college and I mean, uh, I, I think, super added to? I don't think it's fully committed <laughs> to uh, to a, a dualist universe. I think it's more. Uh, you know, we have both natural and supernatural ends. The super the natural end of the school of the the lower school is to get basically to get you to higher school. <laughs> I think. Um, one more uh, question for you, Joe, if you don't mind. I'm yeah, going to take you back. It'll be a similar to the, the other one I asked, maybe, at the, the first one. And, you know, Steve, don't let me stop you from going into a discussion of uh, varieties of Thomism next. <laughs> but, uh, please do um, stop pretty, him. Sorry. pretty sure I'd be out of Actually, my depth. Really yes, bad, bad theological oh. joke there. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, you know, I asked before about the gifts that you received from your tradition from the Restoration Movement. I'm also wondering about the gifts from that you see coming from Catholicism, you, you being an immersed, being immersed in, a, in, you know, at a university that was Catholic and re- pursuing your PhD and attaining it, and then also being steeped in in these Catholic sources. Uh, what are some of the gifts that are that you see uh, coming from that direction? Uh, I'd be interested to hear. Yeah. Well, you know, I I can only speak to my experience at Marquette. But being there, I came to recognize and realize that Catholicism is not one thing, right? And Catholic institutions don't all operate the same way. There are different charisms and the different different orders. And I I can't say for sure, but I doubt I would have received the affirmation and permission to explore the way that I did if I was not at a Jesuit institution. I said it already, and I'll say it again. I just love love the Jesuits. I found at Marquette wide open spaces, and, you know, some, some folks were perplexed, you know, by what I was doing there, but after the, they admitted five of us in three years, you know, they got used to us being around, 
And uh, so we stopped getting the same questions over and over again, and they just let us explore. Mm-hmm. What a gift that is. And you know, it's not just at that point in my education that I, that I received that gift. I received that gift at both Johnson and Lincoln, so that's another thing that I received from, from my own mm-hmm. tradition. But especially at Marquette, you know, one of the most significant formative aspects of my time at Marquette was I applied for and was accepted to work as a hall minister at a freshman dormitory for the last two years that we were in Milwaukee. So they entrusted an ordained low church Protestant minister with spiritual formation of 240 students. Now, of course, that was like on a voluntary basis. Like, uh, so the students who the students who came to me for spiritual guidance, for prayer, for counsel were self they self selected. But what a gift that was to be at an institution that recognized that I had both uh, you know formative education and and pastoral skills and a call to to ministry. A Jesuit Roman Catholic institution invited me to to minister to to the students. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there, there are a lot of ways in which that gift was significant for me, you know, keeping me thinking about the, the pastoral uh, and practor, pra- practical dimensions of, like, intense theological reflection, helping me to learn to communicate those things with my students that weren't, weren't they actually weren't my students. I didn't teach when I was at Marquette. My, I, I wouldn't say my flock. There are worse words. Maybe. Yeah, there, there are. Yeah, I mean, I can't say my parishioners, right? I'm, you know, in a Catholic context, the ecclesiology is, uh, you know, it's it's difficult to work out. But to be invited into that, to be affirmed in that, to 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 have that, as you both know, doctoral education has, it's it's ascetic, and it it takes you out of a lot of personal contexts and reshapes you in lots of ways and you know we can talk about the 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 ups and downs of that but i i experienced those ups and downs but i also experienced the intimacy of mentoring students and reading scripture with them and praying with them and being invited and affirmed to do that by the by campus ministry at marquette being invited and affirmed to ask my questions and to wonder about my concerns by the Department of Theology being supported in that financially, emotionally, spiritually. What what a gift. Yeah, I'm I'm so very grateful. I could not have imagined having a better experience. And you also know doing doctoral work that doesn't mean that there were sure. no difficulties. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, and I and I also should say that this is maybe going to sound kind of cheesy, but I couldn't have moved into those wide open spaces at Lincoln or at Marquette in concrete ways apart from the support of my wife, Carice, who has taught me more than than I have learned in mm-hmm. reading books and ha- has affirmed me in this vocation of, of teaching and learning and mentoring and partnership and service of the, the good news that God is for us and redeeming the world in Christ through the Spirit. So as we come to the close here, I like to wrap up with what I consider to be five less serious questions. 
So question number one, are you, I think I know the answer to this, but are you more of a coffee or a tea person? Coffee. Black. Like all day? Are you like once in the morning? Like what's your... Uh, once or twice in the morning. My okay. students, uh, I, I carry around a French press pretty regularly. <laughs> it's, a, it's a big one. Start drinking coffee from about the time I get to work at 8 and finish usually around 11 or 11.30. So, and that's... That's how I roll. And it, so, do you have like a cutoff point where if you have coffee at a certain hour, you're like you're not going to be able to sleep, or probably, but I don't sleep well uh, <laughs> anyway. So it's hard to know what the precise influence is. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. All right. Number two, as someone who comes out of the Church of Christ context, which is well known for beautiful singing, yeah, I was wondering, do you have a favorite or least favorite liturgical song? So uh, I. I actually hail from uh, the part of the Restoration Movement that's cool with instruments. Ah. So I didn't get the, okay. the okay. rich, beautiful a cappella singing uh, from the Churches of Christ. But I just love—we we worshiped at a Lutheran church while we were in Milwaukee, because that's mm-hmm. where my wife got a job. We didn't intend to become Lutherans. Yeah. It just kind of happened. Well, it's Milwaukee. So. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, there's There are you know, limited options. <laughs> uh, but uh, I just loved all the, the songs that we would sing— on a weekly basis in, mm. in the liturgy and not thinking of any of their names because I'm a low church Protestant, sure. but just, yeah, just the richness of the rhythms of those. Right. So, and I have met few hymns that I did not love, few okay. liturgical songs that I didn't. So, okay. This may be a dicey question for a low church Protestant. I don't know, but uh, of whom or what would you be the patron saint? The patron saint, so maybe the anti Saint Patrick. I don't know if you looked at my uh, my Facebook page, but since moving to For- Florida, I've renewed an interest in herpetology, study of reptiles and amphibians. So I go out and look for snakes at least two or three times a week. So uh, yeah. this is a really strange patron saint. Yeah. Like like you know, uh, Christians have not always been comfortable with snakes for biblical and theological reasons, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which are irresponsible. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I love I love the scaly creations of God. Okay. So the patron saint of snakes. Nice. I like it. So. <laughs> what is the best thing you have read recently? Book, article, story, tweet, I mean, you name right. it. So I really, I'm really enjoying David Bentley Hart's translation of the New Testament. Mm. I just read... Fleming Rutledge's The Crucifixion okay. uh, with one of my students. That was a tremendous uh, experience. I would say those those two are probably at the top of the, the list. I'm trying to think of anything else that has really been stimulating recently. I, I think that, that I would just restrict All it right. to those two. Good to know. So. And then last question. This is the, the new Lonergan question I'm trying out. Okay. <laughs> if you were a functional specialty, which functional specialty would you be and why? Well, that's really hard, um, <laughs> right? Because you can't just. So they have each of them has their own integrity, mm-hmm. but since they emerge from what human beings are, you can't do one and you know not fully independent, disconnected yeah. from the others. So either systematics or communications. Mm. I think in terms of my own like personal questions and drives, systematics. Okay. Uh, because I'm you've you've heard my faith commitment. I sure. think probably in this, but. It's a faith commitment that is oriented towards understanding mm-hmm. um, so what is God calling the churches to today. 
what is what does that mean? Mm-hmm. What what is our confession of of the creeds? What is our commitment to Scripture? Our our belief that God is is using us, working in, in the situation. What does that mean? Yeah. But also, I'm I'm a, a teacher, mm-hmm. and so I'm always thinking every day that I enter the classroom, how can I help my students to to grow? Yeah. So either systematics or communications. All so right. by trade, I'm a systematician. Mm-hmm. So. That's probably maybe where I lean a little bit more. All right. Well, excellent. I, for the first time asking that question, that was a great answer. So Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> well, Joe, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Steve and Matt. Really appreciate the opportunity. It's a privilege and a lot of fun. Absolutely. The Daily Theology Podcast was produced this week by Matthew Tapey and Stephen Oakey. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. You can go check them out on Spotify if you have not already done that. Special thanks this week to the St. Leo Center for Catholic Jewish Studies, who brought Professor Gordon to campus and also let us use their space to record. A special shout out this episode to our newest Patreon supporter at the, it's really more of a comment level, Keith Burgoyne. Again, Keith, I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name. Lastly, if you haven't already, please leave us a review on iTunes. If you're interested in more from Daily Theology, you can find us online at dailytheology.org, on Facebook at Daily Theology, or on Twitter at Daily Theo.